家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播的。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, everyone. In September 2019, at the United Nations General Assembly, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi claimed that development is the master key to solving all problems. It is an emblematic statement for the Chinese approach to development that purports to solve not only problems of poverty and poor living conditions, but also create peace and stability. But Chinese engagement in international development is not without critics. In February 2020, during his visit to Ethiopia, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo remarked that. Countries should be wary of authoritarian regimes with empty promises. They breed corruption, dependency. They don't hire local people. They don't train. They don't lead them. My name is Johannes Heller, and to talk about China's role as a development actor, I am joined today by Matt Fershen, head of global China research at Merix. Before joining Merix, he has been a faculty member at the Department for International Relations at Tsinghua University and a scholar at Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Hello, Matt. Hello. Good morning. First off, why is China's engagement as a development actor controversial? Well, it's controversial for at least two reasons. the The first of them is the way that China portrays what it's doing as a development actor versus how it's portrayed,、uh, especially in the West、uh, and increasingly by by the United States. So,、uh, for China's part. They say things like Wang Yi、uh, that development is a solution to almost all problems, both domestic and foreign, for China, and that China has solutions to those problems.、Um, this is where we get the language of win-win, mutually beneficial relations、uh, surrounding Chinese commerce,、uh, Chinese investment, Chinese finance. Um, and then we see the counterpart to these kinds of discussions,、uh, where Mike Pompeo, for instance,、uh, claims that China is a bad actor in developing country regions like Africa and and Latin America、uh, for these very specific reasons、uh, that it may not have win-win outcomes,、uh, and on top of that, that China may be using some of these policies in order to gain leverage. Uh, over others, and then there's a second set of issues, which are basically the very detailed level issues of what happens when China does、uh, a development style project, say an infrastructure project, debt questions,、uh, impact on the environment,、uh, impact on local communities, and again, for the Chinese side, they say this overall brings positive. Development outcomes to partners, and then there are lots of voices, not just from the U.S. but also from partner countries, saying, "Well, maybe it's not going as smoothly as all of that." Maybe we can go a little bit deeper there to what is the difference between China's vision of international development and a Western vision of international development.、Uh, again, there are a couple different levels to this. I think when thinking about how. China approaches the question of development. We first have to link at what the concept of development means、uh, in domestic matters inside China itself. I would say since the early 1980s, a key concept of governance in China for the Communist Party has been the promotion of development, and party leaders have said consistently since that time that development is necessary for stability, and stability is necessary for development. And then the party gets to Decide both what is development and what is stability, and this has changed over time. But it is a central component.
component of governance inside China itself. And basically everyone inside the party and in Chinese society would more or less agree that yes, we need development and we need stability. Uh, but it's also been very disruptive in many ways. Uh, it's not always so stable and questions of what development are, including impacts on, say, the environment have, have long been controversial. Now, what China is doing on the international stage is taking a very similar version of this mantra and putting it in place in rhetoric, uh, basically saying that what China offers to the world is development and an outcome of this is peace and security. So China's key foreign policy platform of peaceful development reflects this idea. So we have to look at that connection between the domestic and the international to understand where China is coming from. Then if we look at uh, reactions to this, uh, there is a lot of skepticism uh, about how China is approaching this. What if China's uh, ideas of development are really aligned with those uh, of other countries? And if China isn't in some way seeking to gain leverage over other countries under the rubric, under the title uh, of development. So there's a lot of controversy there. And then the other issue is that development, as seen from most places in the West, the United States, much of Europe, is about aid and assistance uh, for poorer countries. This is not how China views it. This is about everyday commerce. It's about trade. It's about uh, investment. It's about finance. It's about everyday commerce. Um, and this goes a long way in places like Africa, uh, in Southeast Asia to some extent, and in, in Latin America, where there are countries that say, yes, we really think uh, that we need more commerce and less aid. Do you think one of those approaches is better suited to the situation on the ground in receiving countries? Or are they just sets of yeah. similar difficulties? Well, it's a great question. And I think this is where we are in the debate about this right now. I think, again, uh, for many countries, uh, again, in Latin America and Africa especially, there was an initial period of sort of excitement to have China in the region as an alternative commercial partner and an alternative diplomatic partner. Uh, and then the real question was, is that what China is offering somehow different than other countries have in the past? Is it actually going to provide beneficial development outcomes? Uh, and that's in a range of areas, uh, infrastructure, trade, uh, and and many of the, the sort of manufacturing, a lot of different areas. Uh, and this is where there's still controversy today about whether or not what China is providing in these various areas of commercial interaction is somehow different from the proposal that has come from the US or from Europe or multilateral development banks in terms of aid and assistance that's often tied to provisions about uh, good governance. Uh, and this is where a lot of the controversy still is. And I don't think the judgment is in yet. And we obviously see this is in the, the way that China promotes it, says this is win-win. We're actually offering you something that is good for you in the long run. And the reaction of the international community, uh, I'd say the U.S. is pushing this the hardest, is saying, no, this is actually in some way anti-developmental. Uh, and don't be duped, don't be deceived by China's offer. Really, this is all about China's interests. Maybe going a step further from economic to political discussions, can both the Western approach and the Chinese approach be disconnected from exporting a kind of a political view as well, like a, the China model, the Western model, the one trying to promote uh, open society and democracy, the other a more like 
let's say, authoritarian view of a one-party rule? Yeah, uh, this is a, a great question and also tied into the controversy for, for sure. China claims that its approach to development is non-ideological and, and non-political, but it's very much tied to, again, how China has approached development domestically. Uh, and this includes how China, for instance, does an infrastructure project domestically in China. If China is going to build a railway, for instance, it can use mechanisms of Chinese power and authority to build a railway uh, by putting together, putting in place the financing, moving populations out of the way uh, in a way that, that other countries just simply can't do if they don't have an authoritarian system like China does. And uh, then if you look at the way that China tries to, say, build a railway project in another country, they come with this sort of idea that, okay, we're going to use our state-led mechanisms of finance, we're going to employ state-owned enterprises, and we'll work with other partner governments to make happen anything that needs to happen to make that project put in place. And that often means overriding or not consulting with local communities. And this is where a lot of the, the controversy is. So there is a way in which China is uh, certainly using patterns uh, of project development, project finance, uh, the politics um, of putting a project in place come from Chinese models, for sure. Uh, and this is where a lot of the controversy is on the global stage then, too, is how much uh, negative impact is there from projects that don't properly consult with local communities, that don't take into account environmental impacts. And in the broader picture, this is absolutely shaping it up into a new kind of ideological warfare between China and the West in terms of whose model of commerce and development should reign. China's most famous and maybe infamous international project is the Belt and Road Initiative, how does the BRI tie into China's vision of international development? Yeah, this is, uh, I think, uh, an important connection because prior to the rollout of the BRI, China was already promoting many similar kinds of approaches to deal-making, especially in developing country regions. Uh, again, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia all come to mind. So China was doing trade, it was doing investment, and it was doing finance deals in all of these regions beginning in the early 2000s. Uh, it was framing these as part of China's developing country diplomacy, part of China's South-South diplomacy, which again builds on traditions from the 50s in terms of China trying to be a leader of the global south. And it uh, also then was beginning to do a lot of infrastructure development, including in package deals where Chinese uh, banks would provide the financing for, say, a dam project. And then they would build into that package the need to hire or to, to contract out with Chinese firms and to hire Chinese labor, for example. This was um, the case in a number of, of uh infrastructure projects in, in Africa and Southeast Asia and the Caribbean. Uh, and this was the model prior to 2013 when Xi Jinping announced the, the Belt and Road. And I would say both the rhetoric of China's win-win development for everyone kind of logic, and then a lot of the very specific components of infrastructure development through package lending, uh, 
and uh, contracts to Chinese firms. All of this has been put into and is a core part of the BRI. So I would say that the BRI builds on this developing country diplomacy that China had put in place prior to 2013 and sort of puts it all on steroids. And that includes many of the problems that we saw prior to the BRI. They have all found a way into the BRI itself. Could you be a little bit more specific or give a few examples? What kind of problems we're talking about here? Sure. So one, uh, there's, I think they fall into three categories. One of them that we've heard a lot of, uh, in recent years is about debt issues. So prior to the BRI, China, uh, for instance, had lent, uh, in the neighborhood of $60 billion to Venezuela. And this is something that I've worked on extensively over the last few years. Uh, this has uh, become, I think, case number one of an unsustainable debt relationship, where because of problems on the Venezuelan side, both because of governance uh, and because of the drop in oil prices, it's become very difficult for Venezuela to service these loans. Uh, it's also become more of a challenge for China then to to get the oil to get its money back. Uh, so this is a, a case in point that existed well before the BRI of a debt problem. Now we've seen in recent years more discussions about Sri Lanka, but in many other areas of the world where Chinese-backed projects have run into some of these debt sustainability issues. And then the other two areas are more what we think of about corporate social responsibility, um, environmental impact for Chinese infrastructure projects, that's both transport infrastructure like railways or highways, uh, and energy infrastructure, so coal-fired power plants or dams, uh, and how much and how good the environmental impact assessment is for those. And we see a lot of this uh, in, in Southeast Asia, but but in other regions as well. And And then there's the, the human impact, the impact on local communities. Um, to what extent are local communities consulted beforehand about a project, for instance, a dam project? Um, what's that going to mean in terms of lives disrupted? Who actually will benefit once the dam is connected to the grid? Does that stay in the local community? Does it then get shipped back to China? Who benefits? Lots of controversies uh, about that. And again, I would say here is where Southeast Asia is really the area where these all of these issues combine uh, in very clear ways and where we're getting some discussions about who's learning what uh, about how to do these things differently or better or who's not learning. This is Merrick's Experts. In the studio today... Matt Fershen, Head of Global China Research at Merics. Chinese engagement through the BRI has hit difficulties in Southeast Asia, as there has been pushback by countries like Malaysia, Myanmar, where rail and port projects have been scaled down or stopped altogether over fears of mounting debt. Nonetheless, Chinese interest in the region remains high. A visit by state and party leader Xi Jinping to Myanmar in January 2020 saw a slew of infrastructure agreements, many of them related to the Belt and Road Initiative. So as we touched on Southeast Asia just before, how can countries in that region cope with Chinese interests in Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think you really captured the the tension here, which is that despite a variety of issues of problems of controversies uh, surrounding Chinese deal making in in the region, that China continues to first of all be 
a huge neighbor that uh, is very interested in maintaining both diplomatic uh, and commercial deal making. And so you're going to have these two forces continuing to to exist and be in tension to, to some extent. Um, Southeast Asia is a, a region where China is extremely active uh, in promoting the kinds of deal making that we see under the, the, the label of BRI, although there are very, very few deals in the region which actually get the label of BRI. That's a whole nother issue. But basically, the kind of infrastructure deal making, again, transport infrastructure, uh, energy infrastructure deals in the region are going on, but some of them uh, have hit serious roadblocks. Uh, and this is then the question of how uh, governments, how businesses, and how civil society react to some of these challenges, uh, especially in the host countries. And what they're trying to do is find a way to understand the nature of Chinese deal making. What are the institutions, the financial institutions, the corporations, the state-owned enterprises who are involved, uh, and even civil society groups on the Chinese side who may be interested in engaging to pr improve uh, the outcomes uh, of Chinese lending or infrastructure building in the region. So the real challenge for countries, including Myanmar as a perfect example, uh, is to both understand their counterparts on the Chinese side, to negotiate better deals, and to try to find a balance where they can do deal-making with China but not become over-reliant on China and also get competition from other countries uh, in terms of infrastructure deals, but also other kinds of investment. Uh, and other countries that are the focus of this kind of balancing are Japan, the United States, uh, and then the question of where European countries uh, and companies fit in as well. Do we have some examples from Southeast Asia where this kind of balancing, but also this very detailed work of like figuring out who your counterpart is, uh, has worked very well? Examples of it's where it's worked very well. Uh, I think this is, a, you know, there are lots of examples of where things have gone less well. And I think if things go well, then they just don't end up in the news uh, as much. I think some people uh, point to a recent renegotiated port deal in Myanmar as an example of how if you come in at an early stage and look at what the offer is in terms of the financing on the Chinese side, uh, in terms of who the contractors are going to be, what the scale of the project's going to be, what the environmental impact is going to be. Now, there was a proposal on the table uh, for this uh, port project uh, in Myanmar. And after renegotiation, and this is where the U.S. Uh, government also played a role in providing some consultancies, uh, consulting services uh, for the Myanmar side uh, to renegotiate the deal, the outcome, at least at this stage, seems to be a little bit more reasonable than it may have been prior to that uh, consulting. So we don't know the the, the project isn't complete yet, uh, but this is an example of where maybe on the front side of the project, if you think through and get some capacity to negotiate uh, and to understand the technicalities, then maybe the outcome 
will be better. Um, uh, in term, in Malaysia, uh, there is a railway project that has also undergone renegotiation, uh, um, before and after a new government came in. Um, and I, so I think this process of these renegotiations is something we're waiting to see what the outcomes are. The hope is that somehow after the renegotiation happens, the deals are, are more viable. But there's a lot of legacy deals where the, where the, the outcomes uh, are still very controversial, local communities upset. Uh, again, a big dam project, the Mitsuan Dam project in Myanmar is probably the biggest example of this. Chinese development programs are also geared towards Europe. The regular meeting of China with 17 Central and Eastern European nations, the so-called 17 plus one platform, is a case in that point. What lessons can Europe and European countries learn from uh, Southeast Asia? I think one of them, first of all, is sort of how China thinks about what it's doing and, and the rhetoric uh, and the substance of, of deal making. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, and in some ways bizarre case of where China has used this language of South-South cooperation uh, that it has rolled out in regions like Africa, Latin America, to some extent in Southeast Asia, and applied that to the 17 plus one framework, which has uh, created a real backlash uh, Countries uh, in the 17 plus one framework in Central and, e and, and Eastern Europe um, have been very uncomfortable with being categorized uh, in, in as developing countries. So one uh, one starting point is to sort of understand how and why the Chinese government approaches things that way uh, and what that means then in terms of actual deal making. So one good and controversial example of how this is actually played out in practice is that China uh, offered a financial package for a railway uh, between Hungary and Serbia uh, using a very similar model that it has rolled out in places like Africa for uh, railway infrastructure. This has not gone smoothly at all. Uh, and in part, this is because China used a model that was fit for other regions and was also controversial in other regions and applied it to Central and Eastern Europe. So there's this framing issue and then there's the substance. Uh, and on both sides, it's, it's created some backlash and some controversies within that 17 plus one framework. But in terms of, of what the homework that needs to be done is, I think the Southeast Asia examples are, are really uh, relevant here because what, what it amounts to is trying to understand who your Chinese counterparts are. Who are these financial institutions? Uh, why do they operate in this way? Why would the Export Import Bank come in offering a concessional loan and then tying that to the need to hire Chinese firms and Chinese laborers to work on these projects and what are the potential issues with that. So doing your homework to understand who your Chinese counterparts are, what they might want, and then finding a, a negotiating stance. And that might just mean saying no. Or in the case of, of Hungary and, and the Visegrad four countries, increasingly saying we don't want or need Chinese loans, what we want is more Chinese investment. And if that's not on the table, then we're going to look for other partners uh, in Europe or, or Asia. What kind of other partners are there around? Like, what other options do these countries have? Well, this is the real, uh, the real issue that's on the table in many parts of the world. Uh, and in 
in Southeast Asia, in Africa. Uh, in, this is really what countries are asking themselves. So there's a lot of feedback, a lot of criticism saying, well, you know, China does the financing uh, in an unsustainable way. The environmental impact is bad. Uh, but at least they're there with the money and the offer uh, and everyone else is just criticizing. So in other regions of the world, this is really where this question comes out of where, you know, who is it that's coming with an alternative, despite whatever the downsides of the Chinese offer may be, they're the only ones there. This is different in, in Europe, uh, especially clearly for many of the 17 plus one members who are part of the EU. Uh, there is EU structural financing, uh, which is a way better offer uh, than what China comes in with. Um, so this is the conclusion that countries are coming to uh, in, in that framework of saying, well, if China's coming with infrastructure offers, low uh, low interest rate loans, that's still not as good as what we can do within the EU. The real question here is in the Balkans uh, and countries that are not part of the EU yet and where the accession process is stalled. Uh, and this is where China comes in as an alternative partner with money on the table, uh, different standards that are seen as potentially undercutting uh, EU standards, maybe even uh, putting a serious question mark over whether or not accession can happen if deal making uh, takes place. So it's really in the countries in the European periphery or in the EU periphery where they don't have that access uh, to EU funds or it's not, uh, they do have access, but they're just not as publicly known. And those countries are sort of using this as a bargaining chip in terms of uh, accession uh, to the EU. And then the question is whether or not the EU has an alternative framework um, that's appealing uh, and, and it, then how China will react. In terms of China as an international development actor, what kind of policy options does the European Union have? I think the key issue here is where the EU goes with this connectivity strategy, connectivity framework. Uh, this, to me, is a very important area of how the EU as a body is going to react to China as a development actor. This is a sort of formulation that the EU has more in principle than in practice right now, but sort of thinking about how budgets are going to work out, how uh, EU-level decisions are then going to be put in place by, by member states. Um, but the real offer here that seems uh, important to me is the way that this uh, EU connectivity strategy pinpoints areas uh, where the EU can offer ideas, policies, assistance, uh, and new ideas when it comes to sustainable connectivity. Uh, I know this topic of connectivity can be seen as relatively vague, uh, but I think in uh, the way that sustainability is targeted at certain very specific issue areas, for instance, environmental sustainability, debt sustainability, commercial sustainability, uh, human or people-to-people uh, -people sort of sustainability. All of these areas are really important, and they all touch on all of the issues that we talked about earlier about how China's doing the BRI in various regions of the world and how that's creating uh, challenges. So, the question is, how does the EU start to put into practice some of these really important areas that it's pinpointed in terms of sustainability? So I think that uh, this is going to be one of the areas that we do a lot of work on here uh, in the uh, Global China Research Area at, at Merix. And then related to this is how the EU uh, 
uh, positions itself as the United States and China ramp up their um, competition in third regions. I think this is certainly one way to look at the BRI and reactions to it. So, for example, the United States is in the process of rolling out this blue dot network uh, and asking countries around the world to sign up. This is uh, basically appears to be a system of uh, standards that will be applied to infrastructure projects. So you can see that uh, if EU countries are asked to take a position on this, this may reflect uh, similar processes that we've seen in recent months, maybe related to 5G, where countries have to make a decision where it seems like they're having to choose between, say, the Chinese option and the American option. And this, is, again, is where the connectivity strategy comes in. Uh, where do European alternatives that are fit for European interests uh, priorities and norms fit into that that process. And again, we'll be working on that here at Merricks. Matt Fersen, thank you very much for joining in the studio. Thanks for having me. My name is Johannes Heller. Thank you everyone for listening. Till next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merricks Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.